0: Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the grace that many of us have experienced to be able to say we have Christ. We were so lost and so undone and so dead until you intervened by your mercy and love. And now we its changed everything. Lord, if anyone is in Christ or new creations, the old things are passing away and new things have come. It's a miracle, Lord, of new birth, new life, new heart, new everything. And so we give you thanks for that miracle. And I pray you would do that miracle for anyone here listening or anyone listening online that doesn't know Christ or have Christ yet. That they would come to a saving knowledge of the Savior. Lord, as we talked about in Sunday school, we are called to pay much closer attention lest we drift. And so, Lord, it's hard to pay attention. Uh, Even on a Sunday morning, maybe already this morning, there are things that have distracted us from giving you our attention. Or something yesterday or this past week. Lord, I just pray you would overcome all distractions that you would enable us to hear what you have to say to us this morning, and that you would give it power by your Holy Spirit to make a difference in our lives. as ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We all enjoy getting good news. We love to hear about a new baby or a new job or a negative biopsy, but the best news that we could ever hear is the gospel, the good news of God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin in sin, the joy-producing message that God has done everything necessary for people like us to have a relationship with him through faith in Jesus. Last Sunday, we looked at some basic truths about the gospel in the opening verses of Romans. We saw that the good news is ultimately from God and about God. We were reminded that the gospel was promised beforehand in the Old Testament scriptures and that the good news is focused on Jesus Christ, whose human genealogy shows he's the son of David and whose resurrection shows he is the son of God. Our text for today explains some more realities about the gospel of God. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. Romans chapter 1. We're just going to start with verse 5. In verse 4 says, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. So first, once want to look at the scope of the gospel. Who is the good news intended for? And so you see the phrase, among all the Gentiles, or you might have among all the nations. And both of those words are translating a word that gives us the word, ethnic so an ethnic group is a people group with a common language and culture it's the same word used in the great commission all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth go therefore and make disciples of all the nations all the gentiles all the ethnic groups of the world in the first century you were either ethnically Jewish and therefore part of God's special people or you were a Gentile who belonged to all the other ethnic groups of the world and you did not belong to God's people. Paul reminds all of us who are not ethnically Jewish to remember what we were, where we were before God's grace intervened. So go to Ephesians 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Therefore, remember, don't forget that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, non-Jewish background, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you are at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. It's where we started, all of us. No hope, no God, no connection to God's people. We weren't included in all those blessings. Look at First Peter two, nine and ten. First Peter chapter two, verse nine and ten. This is who we are now. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. So there's this huge before-after picture of what we were like before we came to know Christ as Gentiles. But as we saw last week, it was always God's plan to include all the nations of the world in the blessing of the good news. So we looked at the promise made to Abraham in you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. It gets repeated in Genesis twenty-two, eighteen, 18. In your offspring or your seed, one of your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the ethnic groups by faith, preach the gospel beforehand, saying in you all the nations will be blessed. So this good news was always intended for everybody. And by God's grace, the believers in Rome have been included. So back in Romans 1, look at verse 6 and 7. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So these believers are the called of Jesus Christ or called to belong to Christ. We'll see more of what that means to be called as we go through this letter, but as a sneak preview, Romans 8:30 will say those whom he called he also justified. All those who are called in that way are declared right in God's sight. So there's something more than just an invitation to believe. That's involved because we know we're justified by faith, faith alone in Christ alone, and all the called this way have faith to be justified. So we'll get to that in Romans 8. Believers are not only called to belong to Christ, we are loved by God. Same way, Romans or Jude 1 starts to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father. And so just again, remember that a perfectly holy God would love fallen people like us is not old news. It's like, yeah, yeah, I've always heard that, big deal. That a perfectly holy God would set his love on sinners who have defied him and rebelled against him and hate him is amazing news. And as we keep going through Romans again, we'll see this love in Romans 5, um, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act. We couldn't clean up our own act. While we're still sinners, he shows his love by sending Christ to die for us. Or Romans 8, those beautiful assurances at the end of Romans 8 that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or powers or things present or things to come or any other creative thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So this is the kind of love that we have been beloved by the Father. And all believers, not just certain ones, are called as saints. or are called to be saints. The word saint comes from the same word that gives us the word holy and sanctified. They both mean set apart. So it's the idea of being set apart more and more from what we were before we knew Christ and set apart more and more to become like Christ. So Paul tells us the good news is intended for all the ethnic groups of the world. And as we've seen before, this purpose will be accomplished when we get to Revelation chapter 7. There's this multitude that no one can count from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. So this plan is in motion. It will be fulfilled by God's power. Next, let's look at the outcome of the gospel. What is the good news intended to produce. So look again at verse 5, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul will talk that way a couple more times in this book. He does it in the first few verses and then chapter 15, Romans 15, verse 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in, here's the outcome, in the obedience of the Gentiles, by word and deed. So that was my goal. Christ did that through me. Or 1626, almost the very last verse of the letter but now is manifested, and by the scriptures, the prophets, according to the commandment of eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, all the ethnic groups, leading to obedience of faith. So three times in this letter, Paul says, my goal is to bring about the obedience of faith, which Andrew Nicelli defines as ongoing obedience that is the fruit of ongoing faith. So let me just point out three things about that phrase. First, Paul is not aiming to get a response of faith that's disconnected from obedience. He was not interested in getting people to make some kind of decision that leaves their lives unchanged. Obedience is not optional. It is the fruit of genuine Faith. So let's look at some verses in 1 John, starting with verse John 5.13. Here's why John wrote this letter. 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you, these things as this letter, these tests I've given throughout this letter, who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why did I write it? So that you may know that you have eternal life. How can we have a well-grounded assurance that we are believers, that we'll be saved in the, on the last day, that we are going to go to heaven, that we don't have something short of genuine saving faith? And the book of 1 John was written for that purpose. How do you know? Read through this book. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal, do I pass these tests that are in this letter? Remember Romans 8, when we get there, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, and he does it through his word. So there's tests in 1 John to confirm or deny the reality of your claim or my claim to belong to Christ. And the first one is in chapter 2, verse 3. By this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. That's the first test. never forget reading that verse out loud in a Sunday school class and a young man named Richard, actually a middle-aged man named Richard, saying, I don't agree with you. I said, what? He said, I don't agree with you. I said, wait a minute. You're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with John, the same John that wrote John 3.16, that God loved the world. And ultimately, you're disagreeing with God because this is God's Word. So i going to have the liberty to say I disagree with that verse or any other verse in the Bible. Long story on that, but well, I can't read that verse without thinking about Richards. Well, I don't agree with that. But that verse says obedience is confirming evidence that we have come to know God in a saving way. Way. It's not the cause of that relationship, it's the effect of that relationship. It's not the root that establishes the relationship, it is the fruit that demonstrates the reality of the relationship. And a lack of obedience is evidence that denies or at least calls into question our claim to know God. Look at verse 4. The one who says, I've come to know him. I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. This is what John Piper says. John's whole case hangs on the certainty with which knowing God produces obedience. If a person could know God and still live in disobedience, then John could not say to this disobedient man in verse 4 that he's a liar when he claims to know God. John would not know, and he would not be able to know if he's a liar or not, if he could know God and still live in disobedience. And in a different place, Dr. Piper says, God's grace is not just pardon for disobedience, it is power for obedience. So there's a necessary connection between knowing God and obeying God. And Some of you have heard this story before or this illustration before, but many of you haven't, so I'm gonna share it again. Think of the two women who came to Solomon, both claiming to be the mother of this baby. And Solomon says, bring me a sword, we'll chop it in half. And one woman says, no, give the baby to her. And the other says, go ahead. And Solomon says, that's the real mom, that one isn't. Now, did the mother saying, don't let any harm befall that baby, earn her or establish a relationship with that child? No, it demonstrated she already had that relationship, because that's how real moms Talk. That's how real moms respond. So it was the fruit of a relationship. And in a similar way, obedience doesn't make us Christians. Obedience doesn't earn us a status of right before God. It's on the other end. If we have a relationship with God through Christ, through genuine saving faith, it will produce the fruit of obedience in our lives. Not perfect obedience, otherwise we're all goners. The verses right before two and three, uh, chapter two, three, and four, are talking about if anyone sins, if we, if we sin and we confess our sins, he's faithful just to forgive us our sins. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. So we're not talking about perfect obedience, but we are talking about the basic desire of our heart is to obey God, The overall direction of our lives is characterized by obedience. We have honest confession when we disobey. That's all evidence that we have experienced the new covenant blessing promised in Ezekiel 36. So let's turn to that. This is how John can say 1 John 2, 2 and 3. This is Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. So there's forgiveness, cleansing from sin. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'm not just gonna subtract sins off your life, and that's it. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So we have heart surgery. We get this new heart with new inclinations and new desires and new abilities to obey that we never had before. And obedience is the fruit of that. And when that is the case, we have a totally new attitude about obedience. Go to 1 John 5. 1 John 5. Verse 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So because we now have a new heart, doing what God calls us to do no longer feels like a heavy burden that we have to carry around. I have to do this. I have to do that. Like some kind of job description to keep God happy. Because of a new heart, we don't see it as a burden. We see God's commandments as wise instructions for from our loving Father that are designed for our good. And if you look at, especially Deuteronomy, over and over, God says he gave us his instructions, his commandments with the goal that it may go well with you. Not do it or else. Not do it because I said so. Do you want it to go well with you? The path of blessing and having it go well with you is obedience. You don't earn anything from God. You can't earn anything from God. It's the path of blessing. So first, we need to be clear that we're not talking about faith minus obedience. And we also want to be clear, we're not talking about obedience without faith. He's not after obedience produced by human willpower and carried out by human strength. That's why we sang, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing, including obey. So here are a few other verses that rule out obedience without faith. Hebrews 11:6. 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not just hard, impossible. Romans 14, 23, we'll get to it someday. Whatever is not of faith is what? Sin. Or Romans 8, 7 and 8. Romans 8, 7 and 8. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So obedience without faith is nothing. Faith without obedience is nothing. What Paul is after, what God is after, is the obedience of faith. Not faith without obedience, not obedience without faith, the obedience of faith. Genuine faith that produces the fruit of obedience. Just like acts of courage are outward actions that express a heart of courage. Or deeds of mercy are tangible ways of helping people that come from a heart of compassion. So the obedience of faith is obedience that comes from and is motivated by genuine faith so look at hebrews 11:8 by faith abraham when he was called obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going so if you read in genesis 12 very first verse of Chapter 12, when God calls Abraham is, or Abram in those days, go forth from your country. When God is done talking, the very next verse says, so Abram went forth. Go forth? Goes forth. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed. He didn't just gut it out, say, okay, I'll do it. He did it by faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So I went to the doctor on Tuesday, and he checked some things out and told me some things I could do to improve my condition. If I trust Dr. Young, I will follow what he says. If I don't do what he says I should do, it shows I don't trust him. It's the obedience of faith you trust your doctor you do what he says if you don't trust your doctor you don't do what he says and in a similar way if we trust God in other words if we have faith we will seek to do what God says if we don't bother doing what God says we are to do or we do things in spite of the fact he says we shouldn't do them we show we don't trust him and God doesn't leave us on our own to obey he provides the grace to enable us to obey him. So Moses brought up Philippians 2, 12, and 13 in Sunday school this morning. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work within you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So you and I as believers are called, work out salvation, including obey what God says to do. How can I do that? Why should I do that? Because God has worked in me by his Holy Spirit indwelling me to give me the motivation to will and the actual ability to do what he calls me to do. So here's a couple short quotes. If it helps you memorize or you want to tweet them or whatever, St. Augustine, 4th century, command what you will and grant what you command. God, as king, has the right to tell us to do whatever he wants to tell us to do. Command what you will, God. But don't leave me on my own power to do it. Grant what you command. Enable me to do what you command. Or John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress. Run, John, run. The law commands but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. So hear the difference? That's why there's a new covenant. The old covenant is do this, and I don't have the ability to do this, and so nothing happens. New heart, written on my heart. Now I can want to obey what God says and actually see progress in obeying more and more. So let's pick two examples. God calls us in Ephesians 4:32 to forgive one another as he has forgiven us in Christ. Virtually every week we have an opportunity to apply that verse, don't we? If you're married or if you have kids, if you have parents, which is just about most of us. um, If you you know anybody besides yourself, you probably have a reason to forgive somebody in any given week. And so we pray, Lord, give me a sincere desire to forgive that person that hurt my feelings or wronged me in some way and please give the ability not to hold this against them so God commands me forgive grant that grant what you command i can't do it on my own i need the will and i need the ability to forgive or philippians 2:14 do all things without grumbling or complaining and that's not just for kids I mean, great verse for the fridge, right? It's for all of us. Not hard to understand. Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand the troubling, it's the parts I do understand. That one's really easy to understand. Don't complain. Command what you will, God. You command me not to complain. But don't just leave me hanging there. Grant what you command. In other words... Lord, work at me and to care about how much I complain and give me enabling grace to become a more content and more thankful person. I can't do that on my own. I need the Holy Spirit working in me to enable me to do that. So the gospel is intended for all ethnic groups and it is intended to produce the obedience of faith. Obedience is not just a nice extra credit option. It is normal, the expected normal outcome of embracing the gospel by faith. And one more truth I want to point out in these verses is the goal of the gospel. What is the intended Purpose. And if you look again at verse 5, it says, Paul received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. Why? For his namesake. Or you might have for the sake of the name. So, which name? What name are we talking about? And the closest reference is at the end of verse 4. This is all part of one sentence. Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the name Paul's talking about. It's similar to what we see in 3rd John chapter, or verse 6. 3rd John. Verse 6, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Why? For they went out for the sake of the name. There it is again. Why did these equivalent of missionaries go out? For the sake of the name. So here's a quote from John Stott that captures that verse or Romans one five. Why did Paul desire to bring the nations to the obedience of faith? It was for the sake of the glory and honor of Christ's name. For God had exalted him to the highest place and had given him the name that is above every name, in order that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's Philippians two nine through eleven. If, therefore, God, desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess him, so should we. We should be jealous, as scripture sometimes put it, for the honor of his name, troubled when it remains unknown, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due to it. The highest of all missionary motives, and I would say, or evangelism motives, same thing, is neither... Obedience to the Great Commission, as important as that is. Nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing. As strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, we'll see in verse 18. But rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. So a lot of times evangelism or missions is guilt, pressure shame, duty. And this is saying there's obedience to the Great Commission, that's good. Compassion for the lost, that's good. But the biggest one of all would be I want Jesus to get the honor that's due him as the great Savior that he is. He's the only Savior. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He deserves that all honor be given to him. And if we're are captured by that vision of who Christ is, read Hebrews 1 to 3 like we've been in Sunday school, that he is worthy of that kind of honor, then that overflows into wanting to tell other people as well. Well, we all need the good news of the gospel because we have all disobeyed God in thought, word, deed, motivation, and attitude. We are all like Pharaoh who said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? None of us, like anybody, including God, to tell us what to do or not do. Ephesians 2, verse 2 and 3 say, We were all sons of disobedience and were by nature children of wrath. And we cannot undo the consequences we deserve for our disobedience. Romans 6:23 says, the wages of sin is death, which means separation from God. Now and forever in hell. And we can't undo that. We've sinned against an infinite God. The sentence is death. And we have no way to cancel out our record of disobedience. There's nothing we can do to make it go away. 2 Timothy 1 9 says, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. But according to his own purpose and grace, which has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So it's not about what we can do, what we can achieve, what we can earn or merit. It's all about grace and mercy shown in Christ. Our only hope is Jesus. Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. He never disobeyed God in any way. And so when he died on the cross, he wasn't dying for his own sins because he had none. He was dying as a substitute for sinners to cancel out our record of disobedience. So I was on my email last Friday, and there was this email thread I was in, and this message comes up, two deleted messages in this conversation, And then you had an option to click either view messages or delete forever. That sounds like what Jesus does. (laughs) Delete forever. Bam! Our sins, all our sins, never to be seen again, never remembered us again. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We'll get to that in Romans 8.1. They're gone forever because Jesus took them upon himself. And he rose again from the dead to show he had done that, that all our sins were paid for, and that he has the power to change our lives. And for those who are trusting in Christ alone, there's no direct application in this verse. Paul doesn't say, therefore you should do this, or therefore you should do that. But it is a reminder, I think just the way that verse is written, that the good news of the gospel is meant to be shared with others. That's what Paul's doing. He's going to talk about that later in Romans as well. So here's a quote from Jerry Bridges. God intends that everyone who has embraced the gospel become a part of the great enterprise of spreading the gospel. So we want other people, both locally and globally, people we know and people we don't know, to know and embrace the best news that anyone could ever hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the good news of what you have done For sinners like us through Jesus. I pray for anyone who is here who has never embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, that even today they would turn in faith to him. They would turn from sin and turn to Jesus. And for those who have, Lord, I pray that um, we would just be very consciously dependent on your grace to live the life you've called us to live. Lord, that we won't try to do it in our own strength. We won't try to obey out of willpower or duty, but your spirit would work in us to will and do your good pleasure. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.